0: Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, David. Morning, church. Morning. It is good to see you all today. I've been uh, out the last few Sundays, so good to be back with you. Um, last week, we entered into the season of Advent, which, uh, as you know, is the first season in the historic Christian calendar year. And it's important for us to understand that uh, even though Advent and Christmas kind of get mashed together, they aren't actually the same thing. Um, So Advent is the four-week season leading up to Christmas, and the trick for us is as the church that's kind of trying to live by this calendar, um, while we're trying to observe Advent during the month of December, the rest of the world is in full-on Christmas mode, right? Like Costco's been in Christmas mode since like August, and so... (laughs) Um, Realistically, we're in Christmas mode as well, right? We're chopping down our tree and buying presents and doing all that stuff, which is fine. Um, But that's why it's so important that as we gather here on these four Sundays of Advent, that we're able to center ourselves, uh, locate ourselves in this greater story and trust that God will meet us in the tension, meaning that awkwardness you feel, even like this morning we sang a Christmas song and then we sang a couple Advent songs and most of you are like, let's just sing more Christmas songs. We will (laughs) a little bit more each week. The awkwardness is the point of Advent. So I want you to embrace the paradox of the already and the not yet as what this season is all about. Because today is, what, December 6th? Correct. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's what I have too. Uh, Today's December 4th and it is Christmas is here, but Christmas isn't here yet. Right? That's where we live as the church, that Christ has come and Christ hasn't come yet. And that in-between is what this season is all about. So Advent is historically a season of waiting, longing, anticipating, hoping for God's arrival in our world. And so it's a time when we look backward in the story of the Bible and we identify with the nation of Israel as they were awaiting the promised Messiah to come. And it's also a time where we look forward to... uh, the Messiah's second coming on earth. And so that's what Advent is all about. So if you're confused, that means you get it. And if it's awkward, embrace that. That's what this season is. So um, the other thing I want to mention before we dive in is that... uh, Over the last two years, in addition to following the Christian calendar, we've also been um, following this other practice that's designed to help us draw deeper into the life of Christ and his church, and that is we've been preaching out of the lectionary. And so the lectionary is just, uh, lectionary is a word that means a collection of writings, And um, the lectionary we've been using is the Revised Common Lectionary, which essentially has four assigned scripture readings for each Sunday throughout the church year. And um, it's a practice that goes way back even to biblical times when the early church was gathering uh, in the Jewish synagogue. And for us, it's been um, a discipline in opening the Bible to parts of the scripture that we may otherwise avoid. Or in other words, it's an opportunity for us to dive into the whole council of scripture or the great narrative of the biblical story without being constrained by the choice of the preacher. And so I think it's good for everybody. Um, The Revised Common Lectionary is a three year cycle and so we are beginning our third year uh, through it. And um, every Sunday, the lectionary has four readings. We just do one of them. We're choosing one for each uh, kind of season. And for the season of Advent this year, we are in the Old Testament readings, which happen to come from the book of Isaiah. So I just wanted to kind of help us get oriented here and get on the same page. Second Sunday of Advent, starting our way through the lectionary again, we're in the book of Isaiah chapter 11, if you want to turn there in your Bible. so. Um, What we have in Isaiah 11 is an ancient work of Hebrew prophecy. And this presents a challenge to most of us in that um, Hebrew prophets wrote in a form of poetry and a form of narrative that's really different than our modern Western understanding of poetry and narrative. And so uh, it's a challenging genre of scripture for many of us to engage. And the other challenge when it comes to a passage like Isaiah is that the author assumes that the reader has a fairly good understanding of all that's gone down in the story up until that point. And so in this case, really um, the passage doesn't make a lot of sense unless you know what the last couple hundred years have been like in the story of Israel. So just really quickly, let me try to catch us up so that we can know what the author assumes that we know. And um, the short version of the story is that in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would give him a family that would grow into a great nation, the nation of Israel. And so as that family grows and develops and expands, eventually they find themselves enslaved in Egypt and then rescued out of slavery uh, and caught up to this place called Mount Sinai. And at Sinai, God gives the Israelites this covenant and says, I want to be your God. You'll be my people. I want you to live on the earth in a way that displays for the nations who I am and what life looks like under my rule and reign. And so he gives this family of Israel this task to be a light to the nations. And then he eventually raises up this series of kings to rule over the nation of Israel, starting, um, well, well, not starting, but kind of uh, focusing on this king, David, who would be kind of this faithful figure on behalf of the unfaithful people of Israel. But what we find is that David and then his son and his son and his son and his son down the line, um, none of them are actually able to fulfill the promise or fulfill the calling of what this faithful king is supposed to look like. David wasn't that king, nor was his son, nor of any of his descendants. And so, When we come to the book of Isaiah, and specifically chapter 11, he's assuming, the author's assuming, that we're caught up to speed on that story. That there's a promise that through the line of David, God was going to give his people a king who would rule and reign and cause them not only to flourish as a nation, but as they flourish, it would lead to the blessing of the nations. And so that's where we are when we come to Isaiah chapter 11. And we're just going to dive in kind of chunk by chunk, a little bit more Bible study style than sermon style this morning. And uh, there's so much good stuff in here. I hope uh, I hope you can come with me here. So Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. So Isaiah, this 8th century Hebrew prophet, begins this poem with an image from the natural world. He uses lots of nature images throughout his poetry and prophecy. And this particular image is that of a stump. So he pictures where there once was this huge, massive tree, it's been cut down and all that's left of it is this stump. What was once beautiful and provided shelter for uh, many is now gone and as good as dead. And then he says, but out of this stump, there's something growing. There's a new shoot or a new branch coming up. This is a little uh, Jesse tree on Ferry Lake in Vancouver Island, in BC. And these are images, maybe you've seen these around, that really become sources of hope and inspiration for lots of people for the simplicity and the power, the fact that out of death can come new life. And it's this universal message that we can all relate to. But there's actually something more going on here than that. Because he says this isn't just inspiration, this is actually history. That this stump, he says, has a name. That stump is Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. And so this stump in this tree represents the family line of David. And there was a time where, out of this line, there was, was believed to be this great tree of God's kingdom that would be uh, food for the nations. But by the time we get to Isaiah 11, this tree looks more like a stump. All these kings have failed, and it's not looking good. And so Isaiah calls the attention of his reader to this stump. But the story isn't over yet. There's new life growing out of it. There's a new shoot. And so here's a version of this uh, image by my friend Scott Erickson, or Scott the painter, as some of you know him. Um, Where we're reminded that the most painful moments of our lives, the hardest parts of our story, are often fertile soil for new life to grow. Um, Christmas has lots of recognizable symbols, right? The things that we see on Christmas cards or Christmas ornaments, mistletoe and candy canes and mangers and whatever else. Uh, Most of us would have a hard time identifying the symbols of Advent. But I'd like to give you this as one of the main ones. A symbol of Advent New life growing out of a stump. In fact, if you were paying attention when you came in this morning, you'll notice that our Christmas tree out front under the tent looks like it's growing out of a stump. But like I said, here's the thing. That stump isn't just the power of positive thinking. That new life isn't just about trying to be optimistic or look on the bright side of life. Notice how in verse 1, the word branch is capitalized. So this new shoot isn't a thing, it's a person. Let's see who this branch is. Verse two, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so not only now is this branch a person, but this branch is a man this man that comes from the line of Jesse, this new king that Isaiah prophesies in this poem, the one who would be what David was supposed to be and all the kings after him. And now Isaiah, as he writes this, he doesn't know when this is going to happen or how it's all going to go down, but now we have this vantage point looking back on it from the other side of history and going that, that branch that Isaiah was envisioning, we now know his name. We know his story. In fact, we know him personally. This branch, of course, is Jesus. And he tells us that the thing that's most important about this new king is that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him he will be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Anointed one is, comes from the word, or I should say it the other way, Messiah or Christ essentially means the anointed one, the one anointed by the Spirit. And so the promise is that there is a king who's coming, whose life will be marked by an anointing of God, the Holy Spirit. Now if we pause for a moment and go, oftentimes when Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit. Some of us are going, that's the weird stuff that I'm not real comfortable with or interested in. And that kind of brings up maybe some strange associations or memories or something like that. And I get that, but notice how Isaiah actually describes what the Spirit-filled life looks like. What are some of the characteristics of a life marked by the spirit of God. He gives us 6 here. It's a spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, of might, of knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. I wonder if we read Isaiah 11:2 and receive it as a description of the character of Christ. This is what Jesus looked like and lived like as the only human being who has ever been perfectly spirit-filled on earth. The description of his spirit-filled life isn't anything weird, it's a life of wisdom, understanding, might, knowledge, counsel. I don't know about you, I'm at a point in life where that sounds really good. I could use some more knowledge, I could use some more wisdom, I could use some more understanding. Life is messy, it's hard being a human, the world is changing quickly. And I wonder if we would be able to see Jesus as the source of that wisdom and knowledge that we need to navigate the messiest seasons of life. Uh, Dallas Willard was a kind of a guru in the area of spiritual formation. Many people don't know he was also a professor of philosophy at USC in Southern California. And one of the world's leading experts in the teachings of Jesus. And listen to what he says. He says, saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice, he's brilliant. He is the smartest man who's ever lived. And he is now supervising the entire course of human history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He, has, he always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in the human life. I love that. That's this picture of Jesus empowered and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, operating not just as a nice guy, but as the most brilliant person who's ever lived. As a legit, the legit source for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, something that I know we all need. And so that's who this branch is. That's what this king is like. Now, what kind of kingdom does he have? Moving on, verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he sees with, hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So this great spirit-anointed All wise, all knowing King establishes his his kingdom on earth. And what does that kingdom look like? It's a kingdom marked by justice for the poor. Where his will, notice there's some violent imagery, violent language in this text, but the earth is struck with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. His will is enacted not through violence, but by his word, by his truth. And so this new shoot won't rule with hastiness, but with righteousness, and will enact his will with words rather than violence. And so Isaiah is writing to a time that is similar to any other time in human history, where there are systems in place, that tend to make sure that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And Isaiah is confronting that reality that we all just call normal. And he says it doesn't have to be this way. Fleming Rutledge says it like this. There are certain characteristics that identify the presence of the enemy of God, who is called Satan. If there's a great disparity between rich and poor, if there is indifference and smugness amongst the affluent, if there's a lack of respect for human life in any form, if corruption and abuses are tolerated, the devil is very happy. Whenever people are comfortable with things as they are, there's lots of room for the enemy of God's purposes. Whenever people are comfortable with things as they are. Jesus comes to disrupt the status quo, to show that the way of this world is not the way it's supposed to be, not the way it's going to be. And so when he arrives, there's justice for the poor. Everyone has everything they need. And so I wonder if we may just pause and go, what would it look like for us to enter in to the seasons of Advent and Christmas in a way that reflects God's heart for the poor? What would it look like for us as the church to observe the coming of Christ into our world in a way that's good news for those who need it the most? As a church, we have several opportunities where you can give and serve. to the so-called least of these among us here in Central Oregon. But I wonder if the Spirit of God might lead you or your family to pursue justice for the poor in the creative ways you choose to celebrate Christmas this year. That's what Jesus' kingdom will be known for. The vision continues and I won't read the whole chunk in Isaiah, 6, or Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, but it's an amazing description of uh, what this world marked by justice and peace might look like. And he describes the wolf li- living with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the goat and the calf and the lion and little children all hanging out together. So the question is, when this new king is ruling... When it is on earth as it is in heaven, what does that world look like? And the picture is that it's a world so transformed that we barely even recognize it, even though it's in the same locale. It's a world where enemies live at peace, where power structures are subverted, and the world is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And I love that he uses imagery from the animal kingdom to draw us into this. This is what Disney and Pixar and everybody has known for years, right? That you give animals this ability to represent all the complexities of human life. Um, Maybe you've seen this painting before. It's called The Peaceable Kingdom. And uh, it's actually one of a series of paintings done in the mid-1800s by an American Quaker minister Uh, by the name of Edward Hicks. He did 62 versions of this same painting over and over again. And um, they're based on this passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 11. And uh, I love what he does here, trying to capture the true flavor of what Isaiah is describing. He's got a lion and a leopard and a tiger and a wolf and a bear. And they're all just kind of hanging out with what would typically be their prey, right? A goat and a sheep and a cow and other smaller animals. And I may be reading too much into it, but if you look at the expression on these animal faces, they're like wide-eyed and having a hard time believing what's happening right now, right? (laughs) Like, is this real life? (laughs) Is this really, like, we're all just cool? We're all just hanging out here? Like, they're having a hard time figuring out how this can be happening. And then, of course, you have several little children kind of mixed in um, with their hands on these dangerous animals. So again, this is Hick's way of trying to capture the unimaginable peace that will one day cover the earth. So we often talk here at Antioch about if we could imagine a perfect world, what would it look like? And this is one way of trying to symbolically capture that a world of peace and flourishing. There's no more violence, no more injustice. But we live and we love, fully and completely. Here's what's interesting. In the background, there's another little cluster. And uh, I don't know the whole history of what's going on here, but I do know that it's some American Anglo Quakers that are negotiating a peace treaty with some Native Americans. Most likely William Penn, the founder of uh, Pennzoil, or no. Uh, <laughs> actually, that's true. he did come from Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know the history of this particular treaty and whether justice was accomplished or not. But what I do know is that there's a huge chasm between the foreground and the background. You see that canyon that separates the world's happiest petting zoo and this utterly complicated reality of the world that we live in? And so there's this vision, again, the awkwardness of Advent, this vision and hope of the coming kingdom of peace and justice on earth, and then there's this divide and the reality of the real world where we're all trying to figure this out. And I think the hope is that Penn and the native people here, as they negotiate a treaty that resembles peace and justice, they're working to advance the vision and the cause of this peaceable kingdom. Living as visitors from the future, living in this world, knowing that the story isn't over yet. So the truth is, Isaiah wrote about this peaceful kingdom almost what 3,000 years ago, and doesn't feel like we're a whole lot closer today to making it a reality than they were back then. But again, that's the beauty of the image of this stump and the new shoot that would grow out of it. That God brings life out of death. Cole, could you go back to Scott Erickson's drawing of the stump? There are times, I don't know about you, but there are times where I kind of just wish God would Give me a new life. Like there's part of me, part of my story, part of my soul that just feels dead and hopeless and I'm ready to give up on it. But the message of Advent is that God doesn't actually give us a new life. He meets us in the life we already have. He shows up in our world, in our relationships, in our messy marriages, in the broken parts of us. And I would love a brand new shiny tree. God says, I'm gonna bring a new shoot out of the stump. He meets us in the life we already have. And I wonder, this morning, and this season as we navigate Advent together, what those places might be for you. And what it would look like for us to ask the Spirit of God to cultivate in our hearts and in our community, rich and fertile soil for the roots of Christ and his kingdom to grow deep and wide. In the very end, verse 10, he says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. What's his resting place? Where will this spirit-anointed, wise and mighty king of justice and peace make his permanent home? The answer is the church. We are his resting place. Though he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus still has a physical body on earth, and it's us. We are his body. We are now possessed by the same Holy Spirit, that spirit of wisdom and might and power and understanding that empowered Jesus' life and ministry. The same spirit has now been given to us. And therefore, he says, we are called, as the church, to stand as a banner for the peoples, as a city on the hill, as a colony of heaven, to display for the world who God is and what life looks like under his rule and reign. And so the church isn't so much called to change the world as we are to be the world changed by Christ. And the church isn't perfect. In fact, she's far from it. As Eugene Peterson wrote, there isn't anybody who doesn't have a problem with the church because the church is full of sin. But there's no other place to be a Christian. And so that's my hope for us, Antioch, this Advent season as we awkwardly await the arrival of Christ in the world, may we as a community be a resting place for the root of Jesse. May our hearts and lives be fertile soil where the roots of Christ and his kingdom can grow deep and wide. And as we wait and hope together, declare to the world that the story isn't over yet. Father God, we are so grateful that you have come to us, that you are with us, and that you will come to us again in, in your son. We eagerly anticipate your arrival. Spirit of God, fill us as we wait. Fill the broken and empty parts of our lives and use us to bring your hope, your peace, and your justice to the world that's waiting, in Christ's name.